Are you join, jonesing for Jessica? I know we are. Uh, welcome to the final episode of Jonesing for Jessica. We've finally got to episode 13 of the first season. Um, this is the show that goes and discusses Marvel and Netflix, Jessica Jones, episode by episode. And as always, I am jo- joined by my co-host, Alana. How you doing? Good, good. Excited to be uh, finally talking about the finale and be able to talk about the entire show and our thoughts about that. And I'm yes. excited about our guest tonight, who's somebody I've been wanting to have on for a long time. Yeah, so uh, let's get to him uh, and introduce him right away. So our guest tonight is Sean T. Collins. He's a writer and critic whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Vulture, New York Observer, Grantland, Vice, Wired, Comics Journal, and others. His comics have been published by Marvel, Top Shelf, Study Group, and Youth in Decline. Uh, he lives with his partner, cartoonist Julia Gerfair, and their children in Long Island. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this stuff. Definitely. Um, you know, I became aware of your writing uh, because you were covering Game of Thrones, and I was on the internet, and therefore I saw your writing. Actually, A Song of Ice and Fire before the TV show. Uh, therefore, right. I, I, I first saw your stuff. And, um, you know, this, this show... Uh, I think we have like somewhat different sensibilities on the TV stuff because I know that you're like still really uh, excited about everything Game of Thrones. I feel like my energy on that has kind of waned, but I also think that my energy is kind of waned on Jessica Jones by the end of this season. However, um, you definitely have been one of the, the critics who I've seen who had like really interesting and sharp critique of what was wrong from the shows in the beginning. Uh, you know, Brett and I are definitely fans of the show and we've spoken. You know what we like and what we don't like throughout the episodes, but I just thought it'd be really valuable to have somebody who come on to sort of present a different opinion about about what the show has been doing at this point. And um, so, yes, yeah, so thank you for joining us and, and sharing that. I, I thought we'd begin by talking a little bit about this episode and then maybe about the show as a whole. Um, okay. This episode really seems like they were saying that they have a number of characters who they want them to have one last scene together or first scene in the case of. Claire Temple from Daredevil. Um, it was sort of like a lot of one-on-one conversations between different pairings of people and things either get resolved or they don't get resolved. Um, you know, we have Jessica has her conversation at Luke rather than with Luke because he is unconscious. Um, Jessica and, you know, Trish have their conversation where Jessica, which I actually really liked, um, where Jessica, you know, like re- recognizes that she hasn't really been a good sister to her and tells her that she loves her. Um, you know, we have Malcolm and uh, and Claire Temple are not sidekicks, so it seems like something that they felt like they had to say. Um, I guess that that like that was sort of the major structural piece that I got from from the from the finale of the episode. That and you kind of get some closure at the very end when you're leaving her office. It's sort of you know we begin with her trying to break in through the office door in episode one, and we end with the big pull out of the end. Um, do you feel like there was anything that the finale did well in particular? Sean? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, do I think there's anything the finale did well? Well, I mean, I guess as you said, I'm a little bit har- I've been a little bit harsher on the show or I was when I was reviewing it um, than a lot of critics. Um, you know, I kind of feel like the show has one strength and almost one strength only, which is dealing with trauma. And the further away from that it goes, 
the more its limitations, both as, you know, just a straightforward character-based drama and, you know, a superhero-ish genre work uh, stand out. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I think the, for example, the stuff with uh, Claire Temple worked really well for me because it was kind of quiet. She's a good character. Rosario Dawson is a terrific actress. Um, but a lot of the business, which of course was the climax, not only of the episode, but of the entire series so far with, uh, you know, her chasing Kilgrave down on the pier. Um, I felt that was like a lot of conveniently ignoring the nature of these people's powers, you know, when it would end the scene and then, you know, cause they had to stretch it out for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think in that sense, the finale, uh, you know, displayed a lot of the weaknesses that I personally had had felt existed throughout the whole show. Hmm. I, you know, I I definitely feel like the pace that I watch the show, which is the world's slowest pace, is I think colored my experience of it to a certain amount. Brett, really, you plod through everything all at once. If you yeah. read it on that, your thoughts about the changed between the first watch to now at all, Brett? Um, I don't, for me, I think it was a little bit clearer watching it the second time than the first time, because I had a lot of questions the first time watching it. It just it things didn't make sense, and it all seemed to be too convenient. Um, I think that was about it. I I think I was just watching for more specific things on the the, the second time, mm-hmm. um, which was just a different experience. I mean, overall, I think the series for me. Uh, start going downhill in the last, I think, four episodes. I just mm-hmm. think it it did not. It had very similar issues that Daredevil had, where it had a good start, um, kind of uneven middle, and then just a tanked ending. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought Daredevil was very similar in that in that same issue. Like they just didn't know how to resolve it. I'm going to have to agree. You know, one of the things that I did before this episode is I circled around with some of our prior guests to get a sense of, especially folks who were on very early episodes uh, and, and, and whom all of really liked the show. Um, do you guys asking them basically, do they still like it at the inclusion? Um, and, I, you know, a number of people have felt that, you know, they like the show the whole way through. A few people said that they felt like they actually couldn't even finish it. It got too bleak and emotionally hard for them. Um, but one of the points that someone had made as well approaching the end was that she felt that the end of the, of the series, it was trying hard to not be a superhero show, that it sort of suffered from it in terms of what it was willing to do. Um, and, you know, whereas, like, with Daredevil, as the show sort of builds to the end to being a superhero show by the end of the show. So it's sort of an opposite path. Um, I mean, I definitely think that, like, just monologuing is three episodes specifically is a lot about whether or not she's going to be willing to identify as a superhero in any way or form. I don't really think that she's changed on that part a lot. I do think she's hates herself less and that's pretty exciting. And I think that she's developed some, you know, when she get when she tells Claire, like if you no, I'm sorry. She tells Hogarth that doing something to people will help you feel better about the fuck ups that you've made. Um, I think that, you know, that's something which she's coming to terms with is perhaps a point of progress from her through the series that she says that now. Um, 
and I, I, I don't know. I think that that was something that worked well in terms of where it ended. But I also I do feel like my energy and affection for the show kind of like sort of petered out around the same time as as yours um, as well. I, I definitely feel like Claire Temple. You know, I I love Rosario Dawson and I want her to be on everything. And I'm still a little bit frustrated that they didn't put her in the role of a superhero in the Marvel universe. Um, because she is sort of turned to being a sidekick to the point where they feel like they even have to lampshade the fact that she's not. I don't that if you if you have to enter a scene where a person says that they're not a sidekick, then I think that probably means that they're a sidekick. Um, I mean, I like, I, but I, I love having her as possible, and I do think the show was smart not to bring in Daredevil or anything in here. I think that would have just changed the tone and overshadowed it a lot. Um, one of the things that, that I was able to get from this is I have a lot of friends who would not watch Daredevil, like no matter what. But you, there's a lot of people who, I mean, partially because of all of the women talking about how important the show has been in terms of its address in sexual assault and things like that and, and abuse. And also just like the lack of superhero thing, I think they made it accessible to folks. And I, but these are not obviously hangups that I have because I, I run a podcast. But... Um, but I, I definitely think that, like, by the time by the time they ended the show, you do sort of see some of the things that they had to do to have it not be a superhero show. And yet I am glad they didn't bring in Daredevil because it totally overshadowed things and messed up the tone. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to see what John says on this. But I mean, my take on it was the show didn't know what it wanted to be. Is when it starts off, it's a, you know, tries to be a noir detective story and then it gets a little bit into the superhero dumb, and then it mixes it up a little bit and kind of throws in a little bit horror, and then it ends it with this mix of superheroes, like straight-up superhero, and then it has her kind of close the show back into the noir set, like try, uh-huh. attempt to bookend it with that, where I just uh-huh. I just felt like the writers and the creators didn't know what they wanted to do. If they just went up and did a noir series where it just so happens she has powers, it would have been stronger. Or if they said, okay, it's a superhero story and she's a detective, it would have been stronger. But the bouncing back and forth created a lot of unevenness for me. And I'd love to hear what Sean has to say on that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think you're dealing with a couple problems. One is structurally, I feel like the show ended when they put Kilgrave in the jail cell. They had to come up with so many reasons to get yeah. him back out of there and then figure out what to do with the whatever it was, five episodes afterwards um, mm. that I don't think it ever really recovered. I think it suffered a second blow when um, the woman whom she'd been trying to clear since she murdered her parents at Kilgrave's orders in the pilot all of a sudden up and killed herself. And mm-hmm. then it was like, whoop, that's a shame. And then it just, the, the you know, that was the moral center of gravity and, like, the MacGuffin for why she couldn't just crack Kilgrim next yeah. by her series. And then she's gone and nothing changes. Um, between those two problems, I think you wound up feeling, you wound up having these last few episodes that felt like a vestigial tale. And then the other problem is, you know, as you said, the blend of noir and superhero and sort of serious issue-driven drama never quite gelled, I don't think, um, particularly in comparison with the comic. Now, you know, if you've ever read anything that I've written about Game of Thrones, you know, I'm very... <laughs> I don't usually like to compare, the, you know, the two 
media because it's two different things. Um, you know, the change itself is morally neutral, but the Jessica of the comic was just a much livelier figure, and I've always felt like Jessica in show was kind of a hard-boiled detective cliche from start to finish, you know, with the exception of the origin, you know, rooted in this, you know, bizarre, ongoing, super-powered sexual assault, essentially. But other than that, like the narration and the alcoholism and the sarcasm and the, you know, I don't want, you know, pushing people away and all that stuff, like, we've seen that a million times. And I just feel like, you know, once you get into episode 9, episode 10, episode 11, episode 12, episode 13, it starts to get a little one note. And, you know, in the end, in the final shot, she's exactly where she started, you know, and, uh, you know, in a, in a private detective office with a broken door. And I'm not really sure that she changed much except not having to worry about Kilgrave anymore. Um, so that was, it just, the, the momentum wasn't there to carry it through the apparently requisite 13 episodes. Now, it's a streaming service, and it's the new golden age of television. I have no idea why it had to be 13 episodes, but maybe you have it. Hmm. So the, here's the reasons where I disagree with there that, with that uh, argument. I, I actually feel like the fact that Jessica is very much like the hard-boiled detective and these are the things that hard-boiled detectives do is mitigated by the fact that I don't think I've ever seen a female character with any of those things on television. And I admit I don't watch a ton of TV drama, but that felt pretty special to me. I do think that by the end of the show, like that that novelty itself, not enough to put something forward, but I, I have really enjoyed performances. And the thing that I think is different from her at the end of the show, actually, is that her relationship with Trish is, like, in a completely different place. Um, I think that the the show really puts a big priority on female relationships. And, and where, like, I think that to me the real emotional heart of this episode is her acknowledging to Trish that she loves her and that she needs to articulate that her, her like, saying that, yes, Trish is going to be her partner in saving the day in this um, her like letting Trish choose to risk her life in these ways, and, and you know, like, and and allowing herself to be helped. Actually, I think that the, you know, at the very end when the boxes of research are being delivered into Trish's apartment, I had a moment where I thought maybe that was like Jessica moving in with her, um, and that wasn't the case. But the fact that I felt like that's something that could have happened, you know, I I really like they're in a very different place with each other. And that's a huge difference from the beginning of the show, you know. Um, and I also think that, like, just as, you know, is a lot more, like, she's just trying to cope with what she fucked up. I mean, giving Hogarth the recommendation she should actually help people to help herself feel less terrible about the horrible stuff that she's done um, is, is, is progress for her, Um but she, yes, yeah, still a detective, and she's still traumatized. And that's the other thing. It's great that the show doesn't act like now that she killed him, everything's fine because I, that's not how trauma works. Um, but I, I, I actually am, I'm actually like totally her story arc in those ways. And uh, and yeah, that actually is something that did work for me on that. But I think that your, the point about why is it thirteen episodes is a very good point. Um, I, I really don't think I had as many moments that I was ecstatic about this late in the series, really. 
Well, I wonder about that with Daredevil too. It just felt like that it was like two or three episodes too long, and that uh-huh. it could have been a stronger story, condensing it a little bit. Um, and Jessica Jones definitely could do that. And I think what's fascinating, I don't know how much of a comic reader you are, Sean, but it, there's also an issue in comics and as a whole where they're decompressing stories, where an origin story was one issue, now it's five. And I'm wondering how much of that in comicdom has it played into the yeah. thought process of the television show. Well, I mean, these shows specifically are so rooted in the material that Brian Michael Bendis is doing with these characters. Yeah. He's a 14 years ago, you know, at the dawn of the decompression era. So I'd imagine it has an awful lot to do with it. I mean, it never really bothered me then in comics, and it doesn't really bother me here necessarily. Um, You know, I just... And I liked Daredevil. I I didn't feel like Daredevil suffered from that same problem. But, of course, I liked Daredevil more overall. So, you know, had I felt more strongly in favor of Jessica Jones at the beginning when I still feel like, you know what, that's enough. I'm done around episode 10 or episode 8 or whatever the case may be. I I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably something to that. Um, Although, because it's television, you get to put in more detail than... Um, you know, than a superhero, than a monthly superhero comic does. Like, there's just more ways to inhabit an hour of screen time with flesh and blood actors and moving parts than there is, you know, in your average superhero comic, you know, 22 pages, mm-hmm. 20 pages, whatever yeah. it is now. So I don't feel like it, it doesn't feel as airy as a bad decompressed story does, um, you know, or that it's playing for time necessarily. Even in this show, which I did feel like was playing for time. There's still enough going on to keep your interest, I would say. Hmm. I, you know, I do want to. I, I think one of the things that I was a real theme in this final episode was there was a lot of like horror in it. That was like an additional tone that was played in. Um, Jessica entering the loft of uh, the broker, or I'm sorry, that I forget the name, but the, you know, the, 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 that couple's left is completely constructed as, like, entering a house of horror. Like, you have incredible mm-hmm. room tone when she enters the room. It ha- Whenever there's Kilgrave in any sort of space, there's always a lot of blue gold light if it's a daytime scene. Um, but, you know, the way she finds the body of the dad with his arm sawed off, you know, the, the, the arm of the other man of trying to go down the disposal and, like, shaking around as it tries to go to the disposal. Like, it's literally a house of horror scenes in there. Um and it was, I mean, you also have an eyeball needle in this episode, which is pretty uh, horror-driven and reminiscent of jokes that my dad would make when I'd go to the doctor as a small child. Um, you know, I, I think that, like, there's even, like, a whole third additional time in this final episode. That's something that, like, there there, there have been other moments where I feel like the show has used a horror tropes. It hasn't been consistent. I feel like this episode actually had more of it than any other. Like, even if when he has all of those... Uh, the guys by the boat, the workmen and the passengers and the boat crew standing in formation waiting for her. It's like something from a zombie movie, right? Where you have these people sort of waiting and inanimate and then they come to life and attack. And I I don't know, I I guess it didn't feel particularly left field to me, but it definitely felt noteworthy. And I don't think it's been as strong as it was until the finale. And I wonder if, I don't know, maybe this tone being brought into it had to do with like, the fact that this was also written by the showrunner, or if it has to do with the fact that it's at the end of the series and they need something else to bring to the table. 
maybe it's an escalation. Huh. You know, I was so focused on why she didn't do exactly what he said she should have done and just leap over them and kill him. Yeah, <laughs> it was hard for <laughs> it was hard for anything to register beyond that. You know, or just like instead of sneaking into the building, she like you know she walks right in and presents herself to be shot at by this army of brainwashed cops. Like I I get that you're you know it's a superhero thing and you kind of have to go with the flow a little bit. Um, but the show itself has been so fixated on the minutia of how to defeat his powers um, that it really only has itself to blame if you're like, well, wait a minute, why did no one wear headphones before now? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. why weren't they wearing earplugs? Why didn't they use deaf people? Um, and so on and so on. Uh, that, you know, if you get caught up in these moments where it's like, sure, you have this kind of compelling visual of this, you know, this mass of people being basically fed to themselves by, you know, this evil telepath. That's a really compelling visual. But if the whole time you're sitting there thinking, like, why is this even happening? She could have, like, gone through a side entrance. Um, it, it it takes away a lot of that magic, for me anyway. Yeah, I think that was a huge issue I had with the, the episode, is that there were so many moments that you're screaming at the television, being like, why aren't you just doing this? You'll end it in two minutes. Like, what the hell? Um, yeah. it just it bothered me a lot with it, and I again I think it comes down to is they didn't know what to do, um, mm. where it was like well we have to fill an hour so we're gonna just stretch things out a bunch. Uh, as far as the the horror element, I actually I, you yes I I like I could see some of the horror elements there. Um, I I think the episode when he when we're kind of really first introduced with with him and the family is way more like horror psychologically horror driven than the end like the end it like I have some just for some reason the whole episode just does not didn't work for me like the fight on the on the pier just felt silly and a bit uh-huh. goofy and I it just it's one where like I could I can see what you're saying with the horror but I was just so taken out of the episode that like I could yeah even you could probably hear it in my voice <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I would say that, you know, I like what you said about uh, the House of Horrors sequence where she's in the apartment, you know, that's like a, you know, some obscenely expensive, like, story <laughs> apartment building, apartment, and, uh, and like, there's family members coming out of nowhere. You know, that appeals to me as just a fan of action sequences because mm-hmm. I bang that drum all the time. Like, action sequences have to you know, be rooted in a specific environment. You have to be able to understand, like, the stakes, the physical Mm -hmm. stakes of each move, Um, you know. And I thought that was really compellingly done, uh, much more so than, let's say, I don't know. Well, it was interesting, you know, it it was a compelling visual to see Luke Cage, like, batter at this cop car door that she's holding to protect herself. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once he gets shot, it's like, Luke Cage's superpowers that he's bulletproof. Yeah. He's got his own show coming up. Like, why is this being treated like <laughs> suspense? You know, like I, sometimes it worked much better than others. You know, um, and uh, yeah, you know, and there's this horror I think with the mad science element too, with the creation of Bill Grave. Mm-hmm. Although I think that was ultimately undercut by the fact that they turned out to be good people trying to help him, and he really is just an innately evil piece of shit. 
I don't know. I, I think his parents, I think he is an awful piece of shit and his parents kind of also seem awful. Like I, I think they're all bad people. That That's how I read it. In terms of how they handle him. At this point, I don't know who to believe and who is the evil person as far as yeah. that. That one I'm still, I think is up in the air and is, did he have the powers before they were curing him or did they give him the powers? Like it's, it really, you can read it both ways. I just yeah I don't, I, mean, think, I, I, don't, I don't think you're a trustworthy narrator I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, I, I I thought it was pretty straightforward. I I really did. I thought you know they tried to make it look like see he's a sympathetic figure after all he was made into this and then it turns out like no he wasn't. And that was a big problem I had with the series too that there was he was such a one-dimensional monster. Um. That I think a lot of his value in terms of what he is meant to depict about, um, you know, consent and sexual assault and trauma and patriarchy and the whole enchilada. Like, uh, you know, he's the scenery-chewing supervillain. I felt well, damaged that somewhat. I, I get you, but the fact that we still have armies of guys running around defending him, which is absolutely true. Like, I have friends who've had to have arguments when, when they've had their own columns and other websites and MRA dudes are still, and I know that that's a marginal audience and that's not like your average person, but um, I, I still feel like there's enough of that in the beginning of the show where, you know, where there's so much of a tone where he thinks he's in a romantic comedy and she knows that she's in a horror film, that there's a certain amount of deflation that happens there. And there are still guys who even watching this, like still don't freaking get it because they're that pathological. But I also felt like one of the things that was really successful was the introduction of Douche Cop, because Douche Cop, you know, until he has his, like, sorry, we, we refer to Simpson as Douche Cop, like, until he has his moment um, of full break with reality later in, the, late, later in the show, like, he's, you know, being patronizing and not actually listening when women tell him no and all these other things, but in ways are, that are less obvious and are things that are a guy is more likely to just actually fuck up on in real life. Um, well, so I thought that was an interesting pairing. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> oh, feel free to. I've had 12 episodes to talk about this. So. <laughs> well, what'd you say? I've had 12 episodes to talk about this. So feel free to. <laughs> I don't, you know, I thought, I mean, maybe this is the problem. Uh, maybe I'm the problem. But I thought, you know, his apparently douchey behavior, you know, was so not obvious that I did not see it that way at all. And I thought he was done really dirty by the show. You know, he's driven insane by these pills, and all of a sudden, like, Jessica's like, that guy is such an asshole. And it's like, is he really? Uh, I'm not really convinced that he's such an asshole. You know, I mean, like, you know, he's a, a black ops guy who's trying to help, and you're constantly, like, telling him, like, go away, we don't need your help when... It turns out they kind of did. Like I, I don't. I felt like they they were using him to make a point that wasn't actually being made with him. And then when he turned into Nuke from uh, Born Again, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like, and Jessica's like, "See, look how awful he was." And it's like, "What?" Like I, I don't. I, I didn't think he worked that way at all. Like I, I just. It was such a weird tonal disconnect from for me from from what they were trying. I guess I don't know. I don't like to try and read people's minds 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know what they were going for with that character, you know. But like Here's the first thing, you know, he was he apologized so sincerely, and they had this cute little scene where they're talking through the door. No, and they have he, all the thoughts and sex, oh. and then all of a sudden, you know, they're like, "Stay out of it," you know, super black ops guy. What good are you going to do? It's like, well, I'm a super black ops guy. And then he goes nuts, and you know, trying to, you know, he almost dies trying to save them, and and then I don't know, it just was so the whole that whole. Part of it is that it was just jammed in there to fill out time. Like, why why Nuke was in this storyline is beyond me. Um, yeah, well, that's a bigger thing. I don't know why he was needed at all well, in the series. I, no, I'm sorry. His whole thing is that he thinks he's Captain America, and he's not. They cast an actor who looks like a lesser Captain America. He has Captain America's jacket. He thinks he's the hero yet again. And the thing with, like, so, he, yes, does he has, have expertise that could have been useful? Perhaps. Him going to Trish to apologize, he was doing that to make himself feel better. He was not doing that to make her feel better. Him showing up in her apartment was incredibly traumatizing for her, and I don't care how cute their conversation became. The fact that he showed up in the first place was a horrible intrusion. I, you know, I, I definitely, like, like, Sean, you're not the only person who I think has had a different read on him. I mean, I know, like, one other person who has had a different read on him, but I, I, I just feel like it's... The show really, I think, did a... I think the show did a great job with explaining to me like what what is wrong with him consistently and like why he is such a terrible guy to be around but here's a here's a thing isn't he right like if they just listened to him in the beginning and were like screw it let's just kill him the only person they would have screwed over was hope all these other people would have been uh not dead or injured or traumatized and all that like it's like i'm not saying that he was like a great guy or anything but in the end he was kind of right in a messed up way no, I, I, just because that was what they had to do in the end doesn't mean that that's what they should have thought they needed to do from the beginning. Like, trying to have Hope not have her life completely destroyed is a noble pursuit, and they weren't able to do it, but I don't, I don't blame her for trying. You know? Fair. I mean, especially if you have and there's a huge thing in comics as well where like you, everybody always is like, oh, we don't take lives. And, like, yeah. they're going to wrestle with that. That's, like, a thing that they're going to do. Yeah, but this guy is such, like, I mean, this guy is, like, he's Ted Bundy. Like, the, the, I mean, he, he's so irredeemably awful in every way, including being very badly acted. Sorry, <laughs> Uvians. Um, that it's just, and he's such a menace, like, uh, beyond, you know, I mean, like he's just like a serial killer and a serial rapist, and and you know he has like the powers of a god, and you know I don't, I get that you know they needed to. I actually thought the, the the hope situation was fairly clever in terms of giving the show uh, a morally inarguable reason not to kill him, mm-hmm. you know. Because um, you're like, oh, it would really screw this per- this poor person over, you know. That's why they have to do it this way. I thought that I thought that worked, um, but it got it certainly got to a point where nothing that was happening indicated that they were going to be able to protect her or change the course of her situation in any way, uh, you know. And then especially once once she killed herself for reasons that are still not clear to me. Um, 
you know, then 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 her whole excuse went out the window. Um, and she did change know. at that point. Like that is when Jessica had said, "Fine, I'm going to kill him." In part because she promised to Hope that she would, because that was Hope. I mean, like Hope killed herself so that Jess would just fucking kill him. Basically, she didn't want to be used as a liability anymore. And the show did change when that happened. I guess so. I'm still hung up on the cops, to be honest with you. <laughs> About, like, how the cops messed up in terms of not shooting her? Yeah, or... well, I mean, for, I guess what I'd say is that here's a place where the superhero mechanics, like the mechanics of the superpowers, make it, you know, make the metaphor faulty. In the same way that the X-Men works, I think it's I think it's foolish to say that X-Men doesn't work as a as a metaphor for civil rights or for outsider groups because it has for generations of different outsider groups. I mean, you know, you, you can pick it apart, but I mean, I think it's resonated with like a whole lot of different kinds of people on that level. But if you really do look at it, you know, like gay people and nerds and Jews and black people cannot actually shoot lasers out of their eyes or mind control people or have adamantium claws and mutants do. So when you look at it that way, you know, people in the Marvel universe actually do have reason to be afraid of mutants while people in the real universe don't really have reason to be afraid of Muslims or gay people or Jewish people or black people and so on and so on. Um, And in here it's like, you know, the cop wasn't in control when he attacked her, like at all. Like not in like, oh, he was drunk, he wasn't in control of himself. No, he was brainwashed and like mind controlled telepathically into doing it. And to then use his behavior subsequent to that as an illustration of like dudes who don't get it, like I don't, I just don't think, I don't think that works because it didn't start in a place that's recognizable. It started in a place where like, oh well, like this, you know, this telepath sent him to murder somebody, and he feels bad. Like that's not a comparable situation to. You know, like the the metaphor falls apart when you look at it closely, and and so I always felt like it was weird that it was being held against him, like that was his doing in some way. I get why she would be afraid to be near him, mm-hmm. but um, you're her sleeping with him and, still confusing. Why me. it would be scary for him to show up again yeah. and so on? But I, I, it's just hard to build anything from that because it's mm-hmm. the situation's so unique. But can't you say there's a good? Like I always felt there was a really good metaphor for douche cop and um and a lot of what uh like the MRA-ness that is Kilgrave and that Kilgrave we use a, a real world example you got Kilgrave as uh what Roosh or douche or whatever the hell his name is and uh-huh. all his little minions running around so his minions would be douche cop Roosh would be hmm. Kilgrave and you have these guys who might not be these, you know, yes, they'll be assholes. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that douche cop is probably an asshole to begin with. He's just kind of a general jackass. Um, but he might have not been as bad if it wasn't for Kilgrave. Um, or he clearly wouldn't have been as bad as without Kilgrave. I mean, Kilgrave tried to get killed Trish. Uh, where maybe it's very similar to some of these, you know, MRA guys is that, you know, they, they yeah, they will be assholes and jackasses normally, but maybe they wouldn't be as bad unless there were people like Roosh whipping them up um, to do things. Like, I, I think there's, it, like, it's a really good metaphor. Like, we, I can make an argument or connect some dots in that. Um, 
Who but knows Roosh, if that's Roosh's I don't mean to interrupt, but like, you know, no, yeah. the MRA people who aren't Roosh have free will, you know. Yeah. So everyone who followed Kilgrave's orders doesn't. Like, it's just... Yeah. It's I, I don't think the show it's a different them. beast. I mean, sorry, but I don't think the show blames Simpson for being brainwashed. I think the show holds him accountable for what he does subsequently. But what is... what? I, I but does it? I mean, it's been a while, mm-hmm. but I don't remember what he did that was so bad until he was on the, the, the psycho drug. Um, he basically doesn't respect the judgment of the women at all. And he insinuates himself in ways that are like traumatizing for them and really prioritizes his need to feel helpful over like their need to have him not be there and be terrible. Um, and it's like, I'm, I I'm not saying I feel sorry for him. I do, but like me feeling sorry for him doesn't mean he gets to do whatever he wants. But to me, it's like, you're looking at a, you know, it's a superhero thing. So here's your team. You got Hellcat, you got Jessica Jones, you got, you know, offer systems and who turns out to be nuke. And it's like they're arguing about what to do. Like, that's a perfectly traditional superhero setup. To Like, for me, to then take it a step further and be like, then he's not respecting their boundaries. It's like, well, then, then Bruce Banner wasn't respecting Tony Stark's boundaries in, in Avengers when they're arguing about this and that. Like, I just... It, it was just it was just so concept. weird to see this, like, very typical dynamic for a superhero show or for any show involving groups of different people coming together for a goal suddenly turned into some sort of referendum on his character, his ability to respect boundaries. Like, I mean, I, I think, think it's very different know. from Avengers. I mean, the dynamics of the people in the room, essentially, are what make it completely different. And the fact that this is so much more, like, you know, like, I guess I should just say, like, less fanciful, even though it is also fanciful. Um, I, you know, I, I, I feel like the, well, I mean, Hulk is also not really a a functioning, I don't know, participant in his right state of mind in those conversations. But, like, I, I don't know. I don't, I just don't, it didn't feel like that was in the same category at all. This definitely... But, you know, with somebody coming in and saying that they knew what was best without even actually listening or understanding um, and and just really making it about how they wanted to do things. And it's very gendered in ways that the other that obviously Avengers aren't because they have only one freaking woman, you know, um, maybe now they have two sort of, but. It's pretty universal amongst all, I mean. It's been really universal amongst everybody we've had on the show, basically, that, like, we people don't like douche cup. And that that's sort of been one of the core reasons why. I think maybe the way they, he talks specifically triggers those feelings. Like, having talked to that guy in your own life is, like, maybe part of why it's so, like, jarring and, 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 and sort of clear to me that that's what he's coming from. And also, I mean, remember, like, this is a guy who racially profiles Malcolm in his own damn apartment building for no damn reason. So it's not like we don't have outside indicators that he's, like, a cop and douchey. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it just didn't seem like the usual, like, team up people having a disagreement kind of a scenes, scenes to me. Um, and he bungles so many things. Well, they all do. Yeah. Leading to the death of dozens of people, like it's a, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, part I guess a lot of it for me comes down to the fact that 
I don't think it's a good show on really any level. So <laughs> when you start tugging at any one thread, like it can sort of get over determinative. Like here I am, it sounds like I'm going to bat for like, you know, poor Officer Simpson. But, you know, the disconnect has at least as much to do with thinking that like he's not great in that role and Trish isn't that great and Kristen Ritter, God bless her, who I've loved in other things, I think has like a single facial expression for the entire duration of the series and I think David is bad. And, you know, like, I just know when Rosario Dawson showed up in this episode, I was like, oh, God, it was like such a breath of fresh air. Um, So, like, a lot of the nuance that might have helped communicate some of this stuff. I mean, you know, I can only speak for myself, of course. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the nuance that would have helped communicate some of this stuff to me better, I felt like was lacking because I didn't like how it was acted and I didn't like how it was written. And so then to try and you know, uh, go, you know, reach for something uh, deeper or more ambitious became difficult because I was so caught up in, like, the the basics of it still. It's interesting you bring up the acting. The first time I watched it, I hated the acting. I really disliked uh, Kristen Ritter. Hmm. Um, and uh, I can't, I'm blanking out his name that did Luke Cage. Um, Him I and- liked, but... Yeah. So yeah, the, the first time I'm saying I did. So the second time watching, like she grew on me a little bit. Um, I still think she did like showed tons of range on the show, and I agree that she pretty much had like this. I think the same face, like facial expression throughout the entire 13 episodes. He grew on me a lot. Um, Trish, I think was pretty much the same. Dushkot was the same, and and Tennant, I just kind of chalk up to his over the top, chewing the scenery, having fun with the character. Um. Almost like pretty much anything that uh, 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 God, what's his name from Blacklist does now. Um, Spader. Yeah, Spader. Like anything with Spader, where it's just like oh, I'm just going to mm-hmm. go and over the top and have fun with it, and that's going to be the enjoyment. So I, I did like him both times watching it. Um, the second time though, I did notice he was doing a lot of subtle stuff, uh, a lot more subtle things than I, I noticed the first time watching. But um, like yeah, what specifically? It, Oh, I'm trying to think. It was like there was the one time when the episode with when he was in the house, um, when um, that first episode when he buys the house, and uh, Kristen Ritter comes up, and I couldn't remember the specific of what he did, and I mentioned it in the episode when we did it. Was there was a, a couple subtle things that he was doing, either visually um, or things he was saying that I didn't pick up on the first time. Um, a lot of it, it was a lot of it. It was looks that he was giving and just you know small reactions um, that if you're not paying really close attention to, it it comes off differently. Like I think a lot. It wasn't just the way he was delivering the lines, but how he physically was doing it. Really, to me, it added a lot to the performance the second time watching, which I thought was really interesting because the first time I'm watching it while I'm working, it's on the other screen, so I'm mostly uh, listening to it. Um, so the second time and probably third time, I really focused on the visuals. Very, very, just a very different situation between the two. I thought was interesting for me. I have some thoughts about Kilgrave monologuing in this episode where you have him debating what he's going to do to torture Jessica and make her life miserable. And he kind of goes back and forth between like making her brainwashed versus making her hate herself versus he has all these different competing ideas of what's going to be the worst way to make her life shitty. And he throws away at the end, like, or maybe I'll just kill her. 
and you know this in this episode in terms of his actions like he goes through the whole cycle of well do i go do i want the cops to kill her no do i want to you know do i still love her do i want to control her do i want to torture her i mean i think he's the most interesting when he thinks he can win her without brainwashing her like that i felt like was the most interesting moment for his dynamic with her um, mm-hmm. because that's his most delusional when he thinks he can yeah. run her over without mind control. Um, so I missed having that. And the monologue today was sort of, I'm sorry, the monologue in 13 was sort of like a reminder of like, oh yeah, like he's just trying to kill her now? Like that's not as interesting. But I liked how at the end he's trying to, to, to run off with Patsy and he thinks he may have won. The second he has any indication that maybe he could have Jessica, he's right back in into wanting that again. That is something that I did like yeah. about how the ending was done. Yeah, I did. See, that's just the weird of like he falls for it so quickly. I mean, the switch to me was so quick in the episode. So he clearly in the beginning is just like I'm up, I'm over you. I'm just going to try to kill you now. And he goes through how many like what, three or four different ways uh-huh. uh, to try to kill her by the end. And then he's like, all right, I'm getting off on this boat and getting the hell out of here. And then, oh, now I'm going to grab Patsy, and Patsy and I are going to grab at her. And they're like, oh, nope, she's sitting there, and I'm just going to totally for her. Like, it's it happens so quick, and I, I actually think it almost diminishes his intelligence. Like, he's clearly really thinking a lot of steps ahead um when in everything he does i mean there's the uh, previous episodes where he's like you kill me and a thousand people will just start jumping off of uh, yeah. of uh buildings which still makes me wonder why isn't there a mass rash of suicides at the end uh but right. like so many steps ahead usually and then at the end he's just like no i'm just going to walk over within your within your reach and and have you um you know snap my neck as opposed to doing a test of her being like, oh, you're under my control. I want you to do this to this person. I want you to go break that person's arm as a test. Like he, everywhere else, he's really smart in testing things out and being ahead of everyone. But here, like he just drops his guards so quickly. I'm like, okay, so he's not that, you know, not that planning and cunning and he's just, he's an idiot. Right, even at, even at his most uh, willing to believe in the in the power of love between him and Jessica, he's a trust but yeah. verified type historically. Mm-hmm. So for him to suddenly fall hook, line, and sinker for it was a little strange. Uh, you know, I guess I had kind of hoped from you know, you know, with regards to this specific episode, he's so juiced up, um, his powers are, you know, at such a higher level. I would have liked to have seen. Uh, more indication that that's affecting him. Like, I just figured they would make him purple for once, you know? <laughs> yeah. He did at the end, man in the comics and he, he, no, Yeah, he had yeah. this I know you mean and I was well. like, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it would have looked silly, but I kind of, like, just to establish that, like, now he's out of control, um, you know, and maybe it's effect, it affects his, like, cognition in some way. I don't know. I'm, I'm, now, now it's my turn to give it a lot of credit. So, yeah. We haven't seen him evil monologues of himself. <laughs> before um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know i think that there's some subtle things of there but you're right it could be clearer you know i had i definitely have one question i'd love to ask to you sean though what do you think because the show is back for season two and luke is going to have his own show as well what do you like think that jessica jones season two could possibly be put it in the right 
I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Yeah, you just totally broke up. Oh, no. I said, what do you think Jessica Jones season two could do that would actually put the show right in your mind? Like, what do you think it could do do better that it could conceivably do? You know, um, I think it could be a situation where it, it, it maybe should return to the same waters that it swam in this season. Um... You know, which is a weird thing to say because I'm I'm sure for a lot of people it would get a little bit one note if it if it you know still had this you know very explicitly uh, you know dealt so explicitly with issues of of gender and and power dynamics and you know and trauma and rape and things like that um, and it would be you know and maybe that's not a brand that Marvel wants to particularly develop with this character. But it would give her something distinctive to do, mm-hmm. um, or you know, a distinctive identity as a character and as a show versus Daredevil, which now has the Punisher in it and Elektra and so on, and Luke Cage and whatever he'll be doing in his solo show, and Iron Fist, um, you know, and and by returning to the same basic themes, you know, the way Mad Men did every year, or The Sopranos did every year, or The Wire did every year. I mean, granted, it's different areas. Urban life, but you know the same basic ideas and themes. Um, you know, maybe they will. You know, could get more nuanced and you know, and just and just. I mean, I I feel like you've seen that a lot with shows recently, where the first season is like, oh, that's okay. You know, I kind of Halt and Catch Fire was that way. To me, The Americans was that way, and just you know, in, in time the people who make the show just get a firmer grasp on the material and even though it's the same all the same materials, what they build from it is much stronger. And so I kind of honestly want to see more of the same. Um I guess I guess the key is what villain they're going to use. And it's been so long since I've read Alias that I don't really even remember who else is out there. But uh um, Definitely broader political know. forces, and that's not going to be the villain. Right. <laughs> it should be, though. I know. I'm all about going against broader political forces. <laughs> um, yeah. Of course. Yeah, it's kind of the whole, it's kind of your whole thing. Yeah. I would say but, that it's going to be the the CGI or whatever it is, GHI or. Oh, you mean whatever. yes, exactly. Like the, the oh, the drug. Who, yeah, who, I figured who, that's got to be. Yeah, yeah, I figure that's got to be the villain for the second season, and um, it's going to be GHI, and somehow, my, my prediction is that's going to tie into Roxin or something like that at some point, um, because they've, they've well, mentioned yeah. that company every so often subtly into other properties. They have, and Roxin is totally Marvel's best evil company. And none of these yeah. evil mm-hmm. companies come close, in my opinion. I, I think I think you're probably right, Brett. Plus, you can get in some cool themes about, um, you know, women's bodies and other people making decisions for women and their bodies. And you can continue a lot of the same themes as the, the first season, which is what I think was mm-hmm. the strongest, right? Like, when it touched on that sort of topics, like, that was the strongest parts of the season. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. Like, to me, the thing that worked best in that way, like, the the, the political material political, quote-unquote, probably shouldn't have to be, but the yeah. political material that worked best was the stuff that wasn't buried in metaphor. It was her having an abortion. Like, mm-hmm. 
and just straight up having an abortion for reasons that people would want to have an abortion. Like there was no, you know, no one was uh, like that, that, that just, you know, I just thought that was addressed so clearly and so strongly and it didn't pull any punches and you weren't like, you know, she wasn't con, I mean, people are conflicted. I'm not saying people don't need to be conflicted, but it's obviously like a go-to trope. Like, in yes. Should I, shouldn't I, you know what? It's, it's pretty much BS. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that was fantastic. We were all very happy about somebody having an abortion yeah. and being relieved, which is what happens to most people. Um, right, right. But, yeah, I think these are good ideas for season two. I do. I I hate to sort of spoiler. I Now I kind of want to hear thoughts about Daredevil. I am personally really not happy about Punisher going to have his own television show. I think it's a terrible I idea. I don't think that's been confirmed. There's a lot no. of rumors as to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, people have talked about maybe he would, but it's never been confirmed. Netflix's response is there's a lot of directions or characters we could go with. People okay. have also said, like, Moon Knight could pop up and, like, who knows? Yeah, I don't know how you'd be. You'd have to... Mm, that's a tough. That's a tough one for the Punisher. Like, I feel like you really... You you have to be very careful, uh, you know, where your anti-hero's whole thing whole thing is like it's okay to kill sometimes, because otherwise you wind up with The Walking Dead, which is a show that I have a lot of problems with, um, mm-hmm. because I think it's like continuously justifying violence against the other, which is not what we need in the world right now. Thank and, you. Well, I think Punisher, Punisher could actually be really fascinating. I mean, I don't know how they're going to deal with Castle, but you know, mm-hmm. I, one well, I think they've said he's going to be a cop. Like that's a given, um, right? And he he was a cop in the in the comics, um, but I don't know if they said that he's going to be a soldier back from war. Which, if they do have that, um, and also go with the family killed aspect, which is you know not not a spoiler to anyone, and that's been the no. origin from everywhere. Um, I think you could do an entire show just on him and the effects of PTSD on soldiers back from war dealing with it. Like you could do a hell of a show uh just focused on that and him dealing with loss and and trying to, you know, make sense of loss of his family, the stuff he did in whatever war and um I mean it could be a re- really impressive show. Um it'd be pretty for sure. I mean people would flip their shit, but it could be good. <laughs> He's a terrific character, but you you know provided everyone involved from top to bottom, creator and audience, realizes he's not a superhero or he's not oh, a yeah. hero. Right. You know? right, right. And like I think otherwise you run into the, the bad fan problem that you have with Kilgrave or really with any, you know, like people who loved Tony Soprano and Walter White or whoever it is. Um, you know, you, you really, I feel like it's a responsibility if you're going to traffic in characters like that not to be moralistic about things. But to make it so that if someone does get that out of your show, it's because that someone is stupid or <laughs> or, or venal, yep. not because you've done a, not because you've left that door open. Like that has to be a door that they've rammed through on their own with their own heads, you know? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Got to yeah, be I real mean, sensitive with that. Folks should definitely, if you haven't read Sean's stuff on this, like go look for that online. I think everything you've written around the concept of quote bad fans quote is really sharp and necessary. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, for real. Um, and again, I guess, but I think that's also one of the reasons why, like, I, I actually do like Jessica Jones is that we we haven't had a female character who was such a, like, 
a, a person who you really would not want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, this is very true. You know, I mean, I do want to be friends with Trish, especially since she listens to Sleigh Bells, which is a good indication that she might have good taste in music. But like, but but Jess is, you know, it, it doesn't tell you that like she's at no, even in this episode, like they brush like, no, like you don't want to be friends with Jessica. Like that's not what she's there for. And that's that's still pretty radical. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And uh, now, now hearing you say it like that, like, you know, I suppose, you know, like I said, I did I did find the the writing for her a little one note, and I found the the acting for her also, you know, much to my chagrin, a little one note. But it, it the idea that like she's never going to be pleasant, like I like that kind of character a lot. Although you haven't, as you said seen that character as a as like the anchor lead of a show, you know, like an action show. I mean, maybe you kind of see it with Elizabeth Jennings on The Americans, less so with Carrie Matheson on Homeland, who I think ultimately is a likable character despite mm-hmm. everything. Um, you know, otherwise you have to go to like Betty Draper on Mad Men or, you know, even I talk about Lady Mary a lot like this on Downton Abbey, you know, and none of them are, you know, fighting for their lives the way that a lot of male antiheroes get to do in their shows, um, or neither of them. And so it, it is an interesting, you know, and I think worthwhile addition to like the, the, the array of characters that you get to see on television to have like, um, an anti-hero who is in this sort of life or death kind of stakes all the time and doesn't get any more likable for being in those life or death stakes. Very well stated. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I, I would love to have you back on the future to talk about any TV or any comics you deign to read. Um, and uh, would you like to tell our listeners uh, where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at at the Sean T. Collins dot com. S-E, uh, not dot com. Oh, my God. S-E-A-N-T-C-O-L-L-I-N-S, the Sean T. Collins. I am at Sean T. Collins dot com. That's my main blog. And um, I tumble regularly at boiledleather dot com. It's kind of uh, Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire uh, blog, but it winds up being kind of a clearinghouse for all the writing I do and just a lot of art and stuff that tickles my fancy. Including last year's winner of my award for best webcomic, last year, last year, as in 2000 and whatever the year was before last year, which was the, 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 the side effects of the cocaine David Bowie one, which I just adore. <laughs> oh, and thank you. Thank you. I love it so much. So folks should definitely go check that out. Well, thank you again for joining us. No, it was, it was really my pleasure. I'm glad I got a chance to like really talk through the show because like you said I reviewed it all in one big short burst and other than like Twitter conversations I never really got a chance to like hash it out the way you do with shows that you know you're not cramming in a week (laughs) thank you thank you well have a good night thanks thank you you too yeah you too good night so Brett I'm back on Wednesday I'm back on Wednesday with Stephen let's talk about Venture Brothers again Yes, the very popular Venture Brother show. Indeed. Um, thank you. I guess, you know, I'm sure a lot of the folks who listen to us for Jessica Jones haven't listened to our coverage of the Venture Brothers TV cartoon, which is an amazing cartoon, amazing television show. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would just urge folks who, who folks who have just discovered us because of the Jessica Jones podcast 
you know, we, even if you don't read comics, we've done a lot of podcasts over the years about movies that I'm sure you've seen, like Mad Max. We've talked about Daredevil. We've talked about um, the Avengers movies. And Brett, help me out. What am I forgetting? But we cover everything. Captain we, America. We talk about like, Captain America, yeah. Any big superhero-y kind of movie, but also a lot of other big culture moments that folks who don't necessarily read comics might find interesting. So I encourage you guys to go back and look at Graphic Policy Radio's uh, archives on iTunes and on our website and and give us a listen. And we have probably talked about some things you also care about and like, and I'm sure we will continue to do so. And Brett, you do a podcast about The Walking Dead. Uh, yes, uh, I don't know if we'll be back for season two of Fear the Walking Dead, but we are discussing it. Uh, yeah, no, we we did our similar to Jessica Jones. It was kind of the proto of uh, Jonesing for Jessica. We did an episode uh, by episode of um, Fear the Walking Dead, so that was fun. Hopefully, we'll do that unless Chris Hardwick Hardwick is a dick and decides to do his fucking show and take up our time slot. Um, but that's a whole other thing. That bastard. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and if you guys, if you liked us, please rate us on iTunes. Um, yes. Those help other people find the show. And, and you can also rate us on SoundCloud. But we also have uh, another episode next Monday. Oh my God! Yes, we do. Next Monday, we're interviewing my like favorite comic book writer of our generation, uh, which is Kieran Gillen, and hopefully he'll be joined by artist Jamie McKelvey, who is also an outstanding talent, and we'll be talking with them about phonogram uh as well as the wicked plus the divine and i'm really excited about that that's going to be early because they are going to be calling to us from england and yes. because london will be calling indeed ha, 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 ha. <laughs> um it's going to be at 6 p.m 6 p.m eastern which is 11 o'clock of their time god bless them so yeah they're being very cool about that so um it yeah. should be fun so you get uh, two episodes coming up that you can listen to, and they will hopefully be up on Blog Talk Radio uh, rather soon, so you can go and set a reminder. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. You can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Uh, this episode will be up on iTunes and Stitcher a little bit after it ends. It usually takes, like I think, an hour for it to go up on both. And then it will be up on SoundCloud tomorrow and then on our site a little bit after that. So um, you can catch it all. And it, please share it, as Alana said. It really, really helps us out. Um, but beyond that, you can find us at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. So until Wednesday, when you can go listen to more Vetcher Brothers discussion, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.